This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market closed to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The cables. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Ferro. At the close today, the price action as follows. The FTSE firmer by 0.08%. We add a little bit of weight to the FTSE 100, up six points on a session. In the United States, through the halfway point of the trading day, the S&P 500 up two-tenths of 1%. Let's begin with a special welcome back for Guy Johnson after his one-month holiday. How are you, Guy? <laughs> Just feels like that, John. Um, uh, to, to, to both of us, actually. No, I have been in sunny Devon, digging holes and playing Good with my children. You. So I have come back to work for a rest, basically. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous. I've been infected by the American worth ethic, which means I, I never take holiday now, Guy. And whenever anyone in Europe takes a holiday, you accuse them of being off for a month. Yeah. So we can go through this gag every time, can we? Apparently. Apparently. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Get used to it. Charlie Pellet doesn't take holidays. Let's find out what the international headlines are. Charlie, over to you. All right. It is the American work ethic. Here's what's going on. We've got a report from Acadata saying the beleaguered London housing market continued to diverge from the rest of the U.K. in June. It says home values grew 0.1% from a year earlier at the national level, bringing the average price to just over £300,000, excluding London and the southeast. Prices rose 0.8%. Wales and the northwest region of England posting the strongest gains. The Confederation of British Industries says Prime Minister May's successor must move beyond Brexit to restore economic confidence and spur investment. Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt will be named May's successor tomorrow and take office a day later. Both have pledged to seek a new Brexit deal. And sources tell Bloomberg Unicredit is considering thousands of job cuts and slashing operating costs as part of a new strategic plan to be unveiled in December. The sources say the Italian lender is weighing as many is 10,000 cuts, though final numbers are still under review and maybe much lower. And that is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Um, we are joined now by a special guest. Lord King, former governor of the Bank of England, is joining us here in our London studio. Good evening. Good evening, Guy. Um, financial markets are worried about a no-deal Brexit. Are we overplaying it within the markets? Is the concern too high, do you think? Well, I think there are two different aspects to the question of no deal. One is the likely longer-run impact on the UK economy, which I think has been overplayed, considerably overplayed. No one really knows, but there's an awful lot of bogus quantification going in to the estimates of how bad it would be. The second issue, however, is the short-term one, of whether the immediate consequences can be managed. And that depends entirely on how much preparation has gone into into this. I think it's difficult from the outside for me to judge whether the UK government is fully prepared for a, a no-deal exit. They didn't spend money preparing for that in the initial stages after the referendum. They then put some money in. They had people working to prepare for no-deal. Then they took them off that project again. This is a most extraordinary response. There should have been a clear, consistent plan 
that one of the options facing the UK was to leave without a deal, not in any aggressive sense, but just quietly saying to the EU that this is something that we could do unless we were able to come up with, at least in my view, some stronger commitment towards a longer-term free trade deal, which is in both sides' interests. So I think that the longer-term impact has been exaggerated, but what we're seeing in the short run, uh, and I think it certainly is probably having some impact on the UK economy, is that the political chaos that's resulted from what's happened in the last three years has clearly created a great deal of uncertainty, and that uncertainty is holding back investment. And at the heart of this is the problem which Parliament created for itself. Parliament voted for a referendum by an overwhelming majority. They told people to vote. They said it would be your choice. The people voted, and according to the rules, the decision was to leave. Parliament decided it didn't like that, and Parliament is pro-Remain. And as a result, we've seen deadlock over the last 18 months in Parliament and it's very hard to see how that is going to be resolved. So whatever the solution now, it clearly has to involve the creation of a working majority of members of parliament in the House of Commons who are prepared to vote for one option or another. Whatever that turns out to be, we need a majority of MPs in the House of Commons who are for something. So far, all parliament has done is to vote for nothing. They voted against everything and for nothing. And I think this is the biggest challenge facing the new Prime Minister and the UK as a whole. And that political deadlock, which has nothing as such to do with whether or not being in the EU is in our interests in the longer run, that's a separate issue altogether. The short-run political deadlock is proving damaging. Just, can, I, can I just take you back to the beginning of what you said then um, about the analysis that was done regarding a no-deal Brexit? You, you've... You've slightly got Andy Haldane's blood pressure up this afternoon, um, and he is—he—he uh, he was making a speech earlier on today in which he kind of responded to your criticism of the bank's assessment of how a no-deal Brexit could be. I'm going to read you his quotes. Um, We're in a in a situation of quite considerable uncertainty right now, and therefore reasonable people can reasonably disagree on the future course of the economy and what's right. And what's not? The, the whole problem with this situation we find ourselves in at the moment is that none of us have got any idea what is really going to happen here. How can we make policy until we get to the kind of resolution that you've talked about? Does anybody really have a clue as to what the future direction of the British economy looks like at this point? Well, I think you have some clues, but I think it would be dangerous to pretend that anyone can plausibly forecast the future path of the economy. All you can do is think about the balance of risks. But certainly the idea that anyone can come up with a precise number which says this is what will happen if we either stay in the EU or if we leave the EU or if interest rates were to be cut or to be raised, we simply don't have that degree of knowledge to be precise about what the consequences would be. And I think that one of the damaging consequences of the Brexit debate is that on both sides, both sides, people have been far too confident about what they thought the consequences for the economy would be. And we can't be. And I think the reason for that was that what we should have been doing was debating about whether Britain has a role in the European Union. Where is the European Union going? Do we want to be part of the European Union going forward. That was never really discussed. What happened was that people said, oh, it's all about economics. It isn't. The issue of membership of the EU is first and foremost about politics, 
not about economics. Mervyn, can we get to the important stuff? Aston Villa, <laughs> Premiership football. Yes. Mervyn King, come on, I, I can feel the excitement in voice now. You what can. is happening next season? What, what are your hopes and prayers for your baby Aston Villa? Well, I think for the first time in my lifetime, we now have a proper management of the club that knows what it's doing, realises that the job of the coach is to work with the team. We have a director of football who is doing a great job in making new recruits. We have a terrific team coming together for the coming season. There are two or three names that may yet arrive in the next week that would really put the icing on the cake. I think we have a young exciting attacking team uh, and I think you will see the atmosphere at Villa Park next season beat that of any other club in the Premiership it's a fantastic stadium when it's full and it will be full uh, and you will see wonderful moments at Villa Park well that'll be good news to my father's ears he's also a massive Villa fan I didn't fan. know that yeah. guy yeah, he's uh, a Solihull, Solihull boy ok so we've got your father we've got yeah. myself we've got Prince William Right. We've got David Cameron. <laughs> We've got Tom Hanks. Right. Okay, that's, that's a pretty that's... powerful team off the field. The Tom Hanks thing is pretty random, don't you think? Well, it's not random. He, you, there are pictures of him, you will see on the internet, holding a big villa flag. He flew from Los Angeles to Seattle to see a pre-season friendly game. Okay? That's, that's commitment. How right? involved are you at the moment, Mervyn, with the team? I'm not with involved. With, I'm not involved. I mean, I see the people there from time to time, but I have no formal position. Um, let's let's return for a moment, if we might, to to central banking and and the world you used to occupy. Um, we are seeing politicians around the world attacking central banks. You see it in the United States. President Trump again tweeting today, attacking the Federal Reserve. Um, to a certain extent, you've seen it here in the UK. Um, questions of independence are being raised. We've now got a very political boss uh, president heading towards the ECB in the form of Christine Lagarde. Has, has, is the era of central banking independence coming to an end? I think there'll be challenges to the independence of central banks. As you say, we're beginning to see them. I think they will grow over the next 10 years or more. I think in part we should look back to why it was that there was a worldwide movement towards independence of central banks. And it came out of really the 1970s, early 1980s, when inflation rose to levels that were very costly, where the electorate didn't like it, and where politicians realized that it was in their interest to give independence to central banks in order to bring inflation down less painfully than would otherwise be the case. And that was the basis for it, and it worked extremely well until the financial crisis. I think what the financial crisis did was to raise questions about, first of all, you know, how did all this happen? What was the role of central banks in doing it? Voters became disillusioned, I think, with all institutions that have been responsible for such an outcome. And secondly, and one thing which I saw very clearly, politicians are very adept at trying to avoid blame. So they are very enthusiastic about finding other people to put blame onto. And you see that growing in countries around the world where politicians want to blame central banks for what is happening, even though the idea that monetary policy is responsible for many of our ills is clearly you know, widely exaggerated. So I think that politicians will continue to try to 
attach blame to central banks. The most important thing for central banks to do is to avoid becoming political because once they do that, then they've given into the trap yep. and they've lost the argument for independence. Mervyn, can, do they have that within their control to avoid becoming political? Because at yes. the moment in the United States, for instance, some people think that the optics have been damaged already just by the White House alone and through no fault of the Federal Reserve. How do they manage that themselves? Well, I think if you were to say about the optics, I think one of the problems which the Federal Reserve has had was of its own making, which is that it went too far in trying to predict what it would do in terms of future interest rates. The honest answer is that no one knows where interest rates will go in the future because we don't know where the economy will go. What we can promise is that the central bank will respond to whatever happens in the economy in the right way, namely to maintain steady growth with low inflation. But once you go far enough to give promise, well, what is often perceived as a promise, whatever you say afterwards, but if you try to pretend that you really can forecast where you think interest rates are going, you're misleading people and you're setting yourself up for the sort of failures which are now attached to the Fed. So I, I think it was a strategic mistake to put far too much weight onto forward guidance. Uh, and moving away from that, which I think is what will happen in the next five years, will be a, a, a will re, I think protect some banks from those attacks. Interesting. And I think central banks can be apolitical. They they can say that this is an, a political issue. Let me give you one very good example. In the case of the European Central Bank, I think Mario Draghi has done his very best to say that the biggest challenge facing the euro area and its existence is the need to create a fiscal union. And indeed, unless uh, countries are going to go down that path, it is certainly questionable how easy it will be for them to deal with a significant future downturn. But as Mario Draghi keeps pointing out, that is an issue not for the European Central Bank. It is for the finance ministers and the governments of the member countries of the euro area. And so far, they've been deeply reluctant to go down that path for the very simple reason that they have no democratic support to do it. And that is the big problem challenging the future of the, of the euro area. But the, the, the central bank governor has to stay out of those arguments. That is a big political issue. Lord King, we are going to leave it there. Thank you very much for so much of your time this evening, both on Bloomberg Television uh, and here on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, John, we're going to have plenty of coverage coming up uh, when it comes to the UK politics over the next 24 hours. Uh, tomorrow down at Westminster uh, and then just up the road uh, we will be on Wednesday at 10 Downing Street. And Boris Johnson arrives kind of late afternoon and we're expecting a press conference from him, assuming, of course, uh, that he becomes the leader of the Conservative Party. We'll continue that conversation next. Our thanks to Lord King. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. Uh, FTSE 100, in fact, all of Europe's markets from an equity point of view going nowhere in a hurry. Um, John, you know that the, S- the, the stock 600 has traded in a 1.2% range over the last 10 days. Amazing. And US equity markets have been going nowhere either. Well, what's interesting is the source for the volatility. So last week when we had big moves, had nothing really to do with earnings at an index level anyway. Nothing really to do with the data anyway. The earnings have been okay. The data's been okay. The biggest source of volatility was the Fed speak at the back end of the week. Yep. Uh, Williams. What, what does that tell you about everything? 
it just tells me that the market is is way too beholden to this kind of stuff, and yeah. that that the the fact that the New York Fed had to come out and clarify something. Uh, we had good fun with that last. That week. situation has got slightly out of control. Mm. The walk back of the New York Fed. Mm. That doesn't believable. Literally, um, Mark. Uh, sorry, Marcus Ashworth is here. Mark Carney, we're just talking about Mark Carney. I was about to call you Mark Carney. Marcus Ash was this year from from Bloomberg Opinion. He will at some point. I'm sure we just had one former uh, governor of the Bank of England. I'm sure we'll get others. Um, Let's talk about about what's going to happen in the UK over the next 24, 48 hours. Is is Britain ready for Boris Johnson? No, but it better be because uh, I think that uh, he will come in um, like a storm. Uh, the 100 days is, is, the, is the usual stick, but he's got uh, far less than 100 days to get uh, both a uh, vote of no confidence, which is clearly coming, possibly even for one of his uh, former colleagues, Alan Duncan, but that's another story. Uh, but clearly the knives are out from it in Parliament. Uh, a lot of his uh, ex-colleagues are not wishing he was in charge and will be making merry hell. Uh, let alone what goes on in the rest of the country and, and indeed with the media. But, you know, he has to make a clear uh, impact with his new cabinet. And I think that needs to be done straight away. So um, we will have a very busy time. We've had this stasis for the last few weeks where nothing's really happened we, and we've been playing at things. All things, you know, suddenly we realise what's been happening. Let, things have let slip in, in, in Iran, uh, Straits of Hormuz, that we need to get back to a government and there needs to be some form of clarity. And that's that's what Boris... Anyone has to has to give, and I, I really don't think he people get and understand what Boris is like. It's so easy to call this buffoon and the, and the clan all that stuff. I think people are are accusing him of of lack of intelligence, are being unintelligent themselves when they think that he is a very very smart guy. You may not agree with him, you may not like him, what, what he's going to do or what he what he has done, but I mean certainly with with the, his record in in, um, in London, yeah. he's shown himself to be a practical delegator. And he does have some quite strong opinions, which we're all going to find out a lot more about. From the outside looking in, and I'd love the input from both of you on of this, from the outside looking in, it looks like a little bit too much is being made of these prospective resignations by cabinet members. I mean, did they think they were having a job come Wednesday anyway? No. I, I don't understand. Why is, why is that getting so much attention in the UK right now? Well, there's a vacuum, so oh, well, say, and the these guys are playing the gallery, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely playing the gallery, and it's shocking. To my crank, I think what what Hammond's doing is awful. Not shocking. It is shocking because he, it's all about him. All of a sudden, he's, he's you know, as King just Moment King just pointed out there, you know, the last three three years um, as Chancellor, what has he done to further the cause of, of well? Let's of jump on that because I think it's really important, not just the preparation, but I remember when Chancellor Hammond came along and talked about a fiscal reset in the United Kingdom. And a lot of people got excited about a real turn in direction from the austerity of Chancellor Osborne to perhaps, to perhaps something new, something fresher, to reinvigorate the economy. Why did that never happen? Well, I mean, we can obviously blame pretty much everything on the fact that Theresa May took the correct decision to go to the, the, uh, the, <laughs> the government for her Tory party uh, and then proceeded to lose everything with uh, an appalling campaign. And that has created all the, all, all the noise and, and trouble we've had ever since. And Parliament has understandably taken as much control as it, it feels as it can from a, a very weak executive. Um, and that is the, the, the situation where you would hope that a, a, a Chancellor would be able to uh, uh, firm up the base and, and create uh, an economy which, which could have been doing some interesting things. I think he's been a pretty good Chancellor on, on many counts. But I think uh, don't confuse the vote to get rid of Theresa May without 
actually probably been even more serious about getting rid of Philip Hammond because I think the, the Brexit preparations are, are, are what, what gets most people um, upset. Let's see if we can get Marcus Ashworth going. I think, uh, well, let's, let's have a bit of fun here. The, the, the UK's next Prime Minister just was announced this afternoon. Um, or maybe the, the Prime Minister after this Prime Minister, Jace Winston. Jace Winston, yes, I know. The leader of the Liberal Democrats, polling very strongly at Can the moment. Can you tell me, and I'll give you £10, <laughs> for every policy <laughs> difference between her and Double O Davy? I nothing. Yeah, I knew I was pretty safe, safe off of that one. Yeah, we don't know what it is necessarily they stand for. Other it doesn't than the fact, matter. It doesn't matter. I, well, it should do, because there are one, everyone accuses the Brexit party, rightly, and let's hope they Boris are. Boris Johnson hid his, his life under party. a bushel during this whole election process. But the Liberal Democrats are a one, are now become a one party. Yeah, they have. Party. But, so, that? if there was an election before UK, the UK left the EU, how strongly do you reckon they poll? Because the polls are strong at the moment. I would imagine they would do very well, but I think they would equally do a lot less well post-Brexit. Can you yeah. explain to me the PR strategy of this Lib Dem announcement? Could they not have waited? No, they have to. It's the only, only moment the sun... From tomorrow... At 11, 11 o'clock, 11.30, well, you will well, not hear Well, maybe anything. I should have asked a different question. Why did they leave it the day before? I mean, this has been announced, so this is going to be where on the pages of the newspapers tomorrow? Mm, yeah. Nowhere? True, but at least they get some, some publicity. It's the best way they feel that to, to get as much as they can, and, and it, they know the second that... Uh, it, Boris gets announced, uh, then it, they'll be off the pages for weeks. Gerald Lyons, let's talk about him. Chances of becoming the next governor of the Bank of England? Well, I think we both agreed, Guy, that, that uh, though he's a long-standing advisor of Boris and uh, is an excellent economist in his own right in many ways, he is perhaps too polemic uh, for an independent central bank. Uh, and if we are to unite the country and, indeed, policy uh, behind a coherent uh, new new government uh, or whatever, whenever that may be. Um, that a central bank governor is, is sort of one for life. It's, it's a much longer term appointment and it needs to be done with so much, but all sides can get behind. And you don't want to get a situation whereby if the, the Tory party were to fall out of power, yeah. Labour or Democrats come in, that they want to get rid of the central bank governor. There, there has to be someone who's internationally respected. And I'm not saying you realise it isn't, isn't. I just doubt it's. Marcus Ashworth joining us from London. Thank you. Alongside Guy Johnson and Jonathan Farrow, this is The Cable. This is The Cable, with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson, on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area, and we're around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. I say we, John Farrow's over in New York. I'm Guy Johnson, joining him here in London. Uh, quick check on the markets. I'm going to ignore the equity markets because, to be honest, they are absolutely static right now. Uh, no real sense of direction, and that's been a similar story for the last few days. Are things of weakness in the British pound? Uh, we're trading 124.70. Uh, we're trading down by nearly three-tenths of 1% as we await the arrival, I assume, of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Let's get all the other headlines that we need to know about. Here's Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, and here's what's going on. Sources tell Bloomberg Unicredit is considering thousands of job cuts and slashing operating costs as part of a new strategic plan to be unveiled in December. The sources say the Italian lender is weighing as many as 10,000 cuts, so final numbers are still under review and maybe much lower. Fitch Ratings says Boeing's credit rating could be at risk as the grounding of the 737 MAX drags into a fifth month. 
It says regulatory uncertainty around the return to service of the Playmaker's best-selling jet and, quote, the growing logistical challenge of getting part planes back in the air threatens Boeing's credit. And Sainsbury is joining forces with Deliveroo to speed hot pizza to consumers' living rooms. Customers in London, Brighton, and Cambridge, among other locations, will also be able to order snacks and drinks from the supermarket chain. As part of a two-month trial earlier this month, Walmart's Asda announced it was partnering with Just Eat to deliver groceries within 30 minutes. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrell, back to you. Charlie Pellet, thank you. I watched The Lion King, everybody. Drum roll. How good, uh, my kids are quite excited about it. Uh, good? The Lion King. Um, okay, I thought it was good. It was very enjoyable. It reminded me of Bohemian Rhapsody, and I'll tell you why. When I went to watch Bohemian Rhapsody, I thought it was very good, and I found it very enjoyable, and then the critics panned it. And as I understand it, the critics are also, also panning The Lion King a little bit as well. Uh, and one of the reasons they're doing it is that they believe that the special effects are too realistic. Yeah. And when it becomes too realistic, you lose some connection with the characters that were established some 25 years ago. And then you start to ask yourself quite a basic question. This looks like an animal. Why is it singing? Which sounds absurd, <laughs> but that's your experience. And by the way, I was speaking to a friend about this yesterday evening, and he mentioned that he experienced the same phenomena watching Polar Express with Tom Hanks all those years ago. Do you remember that? Yep. They, they were I've human, seen it many they, times. They were human-looking but not quite human and there was something jarring and grating about it that i can enjoy the movie and I, I my friend found exactly the same so watching lion king was a similar experience for the first i don't know 20 minutes then you get over it then you enjoy the movie but i can see why the critics have those thoughts i i am not going to comment until i've seen it will you let me know what you think yeah and i have to say looking at the audience they weren't kids and i went around 4 p.m new york time and it was Full of people my age, guy. Okay. Well, that's probably quite good for for the producers then. And there was ten, I would say, ten screenings, I think, uh, at my cinema that day. And they were pretty much all sold out. Uh, how I many of those uh, people were just paying for air conditioning for two hours? Well, there's that too, Mike. <laughs> there's that too. But then I actually thought about it. If you think about the, the generation that watched this as children. Yeah, and that's say it. They that's went up to about ten years old. That's the mid-90s. They're in the 30s now. It's them, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I think the parents that watched it with their children at the time are interested in watching it. And, yep. Guy, you're going to have to do the same thing all over again. See, I, I would say I, I've got slight concern about another movie coming out. And I was discussing this with mates over the weekend. There is a sequel to Top Gun coming out next yes, year. Yes, and I'm excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Are you, which have I you seen am, the trailer? Which I'm concerned. Yeah, I have seen the trailer, which I'm concerned and excited about. What, what are your concerns? Well, the first one was so good. And do you want to have, do you want the sequel to kind of destroy it? It's a bit like those kind of the, the three, four, no, uh, four, five, and six Star Wars movies. Do you think you can destroy the original? No, you can't. But it, but it, I think you can taint it. You can ruin the brand. Yeah, I think you can undermine. That was it. Was I, that film was iconic? It's like it's like um, a Point Break. Another one that they tried to sort of remake or do something else with, and 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 I think it undermined. The original kind of because you always when you think about the original, you only think about the rubbish one. What's with the remakes it? right now? Anyway, I was watching the trailers. Mulan. Do you remember Mulan in the nineties? Yep. The, the Disney cartoon. It is coming. It is coming, and it looks like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I mean, the special effects in that are amazing. It is no longer a cartoon. It looks very, very cool. 
Oh, I didn't even know that was coming out. That's... 2020, oh, Michael okay. Regan. 2020. Charlie Pellet. You want to weigh in? We just hanging out. I'm still trying to figure out like something Guy Johnson said like a half an hour ago about quote digging holes in Devon. Is that code for something? I had no idea what that meant. No, I was sitting on a beach with my children, digging, oh, like literally digging holes on a oh, beach, oh, <laughs> waiting for enough. the tide to come in. So they've got something to sit yeah, in. I mean, I mean, you guys are dealing you, with. You guys are dealing with this is not Keynesian economics. I know, I know, and that's what we typically deal with on this program. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm trying to think: is that like an economic code? Smashing windows. I have no idea. (laughs) Right there, you go. I have I I had no idea what that meant. So that's it. As for the sequels. One of the great things about, from Hollywood's perspective, in having a sequel is you've already got the branding, you've already got the characters, uh, you don't have to explain things to an audience. It's almost free money. Oh, Disney's making a fortune. Uh, they absolutely are. But I, I can't think of them, uh, to your point, a couple of movies that just, the sequel was just absolutely horrible. Thinking about Saturday Night Fever, which was a brilliant piece of movie ma- making, what, 50 years ago, 40 years ago? And then the follow-up, a movie called Staying Alive that was just absolutely horrible. And likewise, too, with many of the Rocky movies, they kind of went down, you know, as, as time went on. So, Charlie Pellet, thank you. It's My good pleasure. to see you. Michael Riggins dropped by. He's weighing in on cinema, movies. <laughs> He'll weigh in on other things with us as well. I, to be honest, there's nothing going on in the markets today. Well, I have to say, <laughs> earnings season, I find earnings season really, really frustrating. I, I like the anticipation of it. But you're a macro guy. I like the reaction to it. But here's why I don't like it as a macro guy, even guy. is because people go into earnings season with their priors and they look for confirmation of them. And I'll give you yep. an example. And this is anecdotal sort of data, so forgive me for this. But just in my conversations last week, I heard way more people talk to me and hear of people talking about CSX, which is a big railroad transportation firm in the United States, which reported or forecast a soft second half, basically because of the trade story in the stock cratered. And Michael Regan's looking at the chart right now, and it's not pretty. And everybody talked about that because it confirmed this fear about trade biting and what would happen in the second half. Barely anyone. In fact, I think it was one individual that talked to me about Taiwan semiconductors. So the chip maker over in Asia, because guess what? Their forecast for the back half, Michael Regan, was actually pretty decent. Mm -hmm. And I just find this. We just cherry pick the data point that fits our story. And then you get to the end of earnings season and you look back and you go through all the data on aggregate. And that's why it's the during earnings season that frustrates me, not the anticipation of it, not the reaction to it afterwards, but when we're in that moment. Just trying to get one story, trying to one get your hands around a story over two weeks into earnings season. The, the, the yeah. railroad is easy to understand, and TSMC, which has kind of huge lag times. Totally and, agree. And companies buy kind of in bulk when they buy this stuff, and then they. Kind but I guess of my impact. point, guy, is it a mistake to start trying to get hold of themes this early in earnings season? Oh, almost certainly. And then start trading on them. Yeah, I think you want to take in aggregate. I, I I always find the most interesting thing is what what the guidance tells you. Um, but I think you you have to be very careful to understand exactly what's going on in each sector, how it kind of fits together to the wider narrative, and not try and make too many assumptions um, that that you bring with you. Um, and actually try and listen in, in a reasonably objective way because I, every sector has got issues at the moment. You don't. You yep. got to understand the capacity. You've got to understand what's going on in, in some. Of, I, you can't take that stuff away. That's why data is nice in certain ways. And, and you talk about no data point being kind of taken in isolation, but you put them all together, you get quite a nice picture. Anyway, this is Bloomberg. This is the cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson. On Bloomberg Radio.
This is the cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. More than a quarter of the S&P, S&P 500 reporting earnings through the week. It's a massive week for earnings and a big week for tech earnings as well. As many people have told me over the last few years, the tech rally is the bull market. Michael Regan with Guy and I, senior editor and lead blogger, for Markets Live. Mike, what are you looking for this week from the big tech names? We had a stumble from Netflix last week, Facebook, Amazon, all reporting this week. Well, you know, it's really about those surprises. I mean, I'm looking at uh, all of the main 11 industry groups, and you know, tech has so far uh, only eight of the 67 companies uh, in that group have reported. So far, though, a positive surprise of almost 10%, meaning they're beating that average estimate by almost 10%. That's a lot. You know, for a, for a group that heavily scrutinized um, to, to be beating by 10%, I, you know, I think it explains why, like you said, it is – it's early in the earnings season to, to sort of take away too many conclusions. Even with this group, there's only eight of 67 out. Um, but when you see that number beat by so much, and across the board, uh, the, the total surprise for the S&P 500 is almost 5%. In, in other words, from what's come in so far, uh, the, the aggregate EPS is beaten by 5%. Now, I know, yeah, they always tend to beat, at least in you know recent memory, uh, but it's three or four percent. Five percent is a pretty big beat. It's it's meaning that we are seeing a little bit of earnings growth, uh, less than two percent. But it's not that dismal contraction that uh, people were bracing for at the beginning of the quarter. Um, so, you know, I, I can I expect we'll continue to see those beats, even though tech is not really. Uh, the place to look for growth this quarter, uh, as it is in, in so many other quarters. In aggregate, tech earnings are actually down 4%. Um, but I think, you know, to, to overuse an already, a cliche that's already way overused is that bar was really set very low. Um, they're beating it. Uh, who knows what happens in the second half of the year? I do think there is, uh, a reason to be even more uncertain than usual about the second half of the year. So, so we'll see. Okay, is this reporting season going to change the narrative that has dominated stock markets for really quite some time? And that is what's doing well is going to continue to do well, and it's trading on really crazy multiples. And that that is not doing well, the value at the other end of the market is just nobody wants to know it. And the difference between the two is just epic at the moment. Is this reporting season going to change that narrative? Probably not. The one thing I could I would wonder if it could happen, Guy, is um, we did see a, a very big movement into defensive groups uh, like utilities, consumer staples. You're seeing valuations on these sort of uh, very defensive groups at pretty remarkable levels. Yeah. So um, if anything, I think we go back to that, uh, what had been working traditionally. So, yeah, your tech, your your communication services uh, companies, they're actually uh, communication services uh what is it? It's only two companies reported out of the 23 so far, but down 14% um, so far. So uh, I could see that reversing a little bit as the bigger, well-known dot-com companies come in. And, you know, certainly uh, sort of the heavyweights of that group, if, if not the market as a whole, um, will, will really set the tone for, for what we expect. For Michael, the to shake us out of those utility positions, though, we need high yields, don't we? Yeah. Well, yes and no. I think um, 
you know, the, a rate cut, everyone's assuming we'll get a rate cut at the end of the month, could sort of reinvigorate that that animal spirit risk-taking mood that might make people uh, get more comfortable. They, they might not necessarily abandon those yield proxies like utilities completely, but I think they will, you know, get a little bit more comfortable getting back into the more cyclical ends of the, of the uh, market. Uh, Mike, stick around. Play more still to come from uh, Mike Reagan as we continue to analyze, A, the reporting season and what is happening more broadly. Uh, we've got the ECB to pay attention to this week. Uh, we've clearly got the Fed to pay attention to next week. The back end of last week changing the narrative really quite significantly uh, when it comes to thinking surrounding the Fed. Um, 50 seems to be off the table in most people's minds. 25 seems to be firmly on the table. Uh, the question is what happens after that? The conversation will continue. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. So John and I are joined uh, by Mike Reagan, who is joining John in the studio over in the United States. Mike, let me ask you a, a fairly straightforward question. Does the equity market go up or down on a 25 basis point cut from the Fed? Oh boy, that's a uh, that's a tough question. I think I maybe a little down. I you know I don't think um, people are quite convinced that fifty is completely off the table, regardless of what the the futures uh, in the money markets trading shows. So I think I think maybe a little bit down. Uh, it also depends. You know, the big buzzword any anymore is insurance cut. You know, is this just a one off? cut or will we get uh, another one this year? I was reading uh, uh, the former uh, Minneapolis Fed uh, chief, Coach Lakota, uh, is a Bloomberg opinion columnist, um, had an interesting column out today saying, yeah, he thinks it's 25. He thinks one more in December, another 25. Um, So to me, it won't necessarily be 25 versus 50. It's probably 25 versus what we'll get for the rest of the year. Two uh, cuts this year, only only 50, 50 basis points for the whole year, if that's what the market sort of decides the message is, I think might be a little disappointing. I think they're hoping for, for maybe 75, uh, one in September as well. Um, but that said, it's really hard to predict, I think. Uh, you know, uh, 25 could very well uh, get some people excited. But I'm, I'm, I would – probably bet on a little bit of a dip if it's only for 25. The good news is that these guys don't speak now for two weeks. Um, <laughs> they're, they're in a quiet period, which is probably music to a lot of people's ears. The beauty of silence for the next couple of weeks, because it has been so confusing. It's interesting that the ECB has kind of slipped under the radar because the Federal Reserve debate has just been so loud. And here we are confronted with a pivotal ECB decision this coming Thursday. And overwhelmingly, the discussions I'm having at the moment, guys, are people indicating that they'll wait until September, they'll use July to set things up. But I want to explore something with you all and and try and work out where you think and how you think the market will respond to potential easing from the ECB. And just begin by taking us back a couple of years ago. You remember when the Bank of Japan experimented by dipping into negative territory, Guy? And it kind of blew up in their face. And I just wonder whether if the ECB keeps pushing this, what the market response would actually be to another interest rate cut without any sign that they're restarting the asset purchase program, Guy? 
I think they have to do both. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think they absolutely have to do both. I think there is a, a huge expectation now. So ideally the ECB would love to be able to hand over the reins to fiscal policy. That ain't going to happen. So basically it's got what it's got. So it's going to have to carry on with, with, with kind of where it is now. So they are probably going to have to do a combination, as you say, John, of a rate cut, which may not be very big. It may only be 10 basis points, a um, expansion of the QE program and a restart of the program. Now, I'm curious as to the sequencing of those. Do they expand the um, – do, do a rate cut, extend the program, maybe, maybe talk about buying more duration, which I think could be something that they could talk about. Or do they go all in and, and restart QE at the same time? Or do they save the QE for later? But I think there's a kind of sequencing issue, which I think is going to be fascinating to see how Draghi deals with this week. Um, the temptation, I would have thought, for him must be to go all in at this point. I imagine it must be. Uh, and I also wonder how he manages the lame duck issue guy, which has really started to materialise as this year has grown older. The example being him trying to push, seemingly, and just in terms of my own perception of what is happening, it looks like... President Draghi was trying to paint the rest of the governing council into a little bit of a corner over a tiering on the depot rate, and it seems to have gained limited traction. Your sense of things at the moment, Guy, how I, I, with regards to that topic at the moment? I think he is now in a better position. In fact, I think he's in a much better position. Why I think is he's that? in a because I think that, because I think the mood music has shifted. That there is now an acceptance of the fact that the ECB is back in stimulus mode in a big way. Um. And even to a certain extent, Jens Weidmann is is kind of on board with this. Um, and as a result of which, I think that tiering issue, I think, could be back on the table. I think there is an expectation that Christine Lagarde is coming. And as a result of which, things aren't going to change that much. So why wait? I think some of that reticence earlier may have been as a result of the fact that Draghi was going, but nobody knew who was going to replace him. But the fact that we now know who's going to replace him and that it's likely to be continuity rather than a kind of sharp right turn, I think probably elevates the idea that you go early and try and deliver some sort of surprise. Um, and the ECB is much more in the market for surprises than the Fed is. What do you think, Mike Reagan? Well, I mean, uh, good question. <laughs> I would think um, – the Lagarde issue brings up a lot of uh, interesting questions to me. I mean, does Draghi uh, leave it for her, allow her to sort of make the headlines when she comes in? Um, but as you said, you know, uh, if it's a continuation type of appointment, uh, then they do uh, ease more now. Um, I, for all of this said and done about the ECB and the Fed, to me what I, I find really remarkable is how stable the, the euro-dollar exchange rate has been all year. It's been amazing. Um, it's just dead. Dancing um, around 112 right. through the last few months. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think – do we ever get out of that range on some sort of surprise from the ECB and then what is the reaction function from the Fed? Um, but to me, just that dormant exchange rate I, I, I find amazing um, – Especially for all the talk politically from the U.S. about a strong dollar and, and, you know, other central banks trying to manipulate us. We've had like the most boring effects here, I think, on record in these ranges, not just the, the and, euro. And but, so many people are excited about the return of big directional trades. Right. For dollar pairs. Right. Yeah. So w will we ever get them? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, it, it's hard to, 
uh, really picture a scenario where we'd get enough of a surprise to really snap us out of this range. Mike Regan joining us in New York. I'm so happy Guy Johnson is back with us. Great to have you back, Guy. Guy Johnson and myself, Jonathan Farrow. That's it for us as we kick off a new trading week. Counting you down to PMIs on Wednesday in Europe, an ECB rate decision on Thursday, and US GDP coming up on Friday. We are packed full of earnings too. A really interesting week ahead. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. 